0: Hello and welcome to Called to Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, gender queer, and intersex experiences. I'm Kate, and my pronouns are she, they.
1: And I'm Colette, and my pronouns are she, her. Today, we're talking with
0: Tiana Madsen, and we're so excited for this conversation. But before we jump into that, we want to start off by seeing what brought us queer joy this week. So Colette, what brought you queer joy this week?
1: I'm not sure exactly when we're airing this episode, but I just launched a retreat yesterday, which I'm real excited for for queer Mormon women. And I'm just Yay. excited for another way to build community. <laughs> so, a little interesting putting myself out there in that way, but I'm just excited to continue to build community in different ways. And it's been fun seeing people's responses and having random family members and stuff even respond and share it with people. So, it's been nice to see that.
0: Yeah. We're so excited for you. We hope to see more of these too. This is going to be great.
1: I posted on my Instagram. I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I have imposter syndrome showing up. My least favorite calling ever. I was a home evening chair for 18 months in my singles ward in Boise. And I hated it. I don't like planning events. I thought, oh, when I was younger, it'd be so much fun to be a wedding planner. And then I was like, no, I hate this. This is the worst. But something about just the queer community, I'm like, yeah, I'll do it for them. (laughs) So hopefully it goes okay. (laughs) No, it's going to be great. And we're way excited. And it's always going to be way
0: better than (laughs) (laughs) F.A.G. What about you, Kate? What has brought you queer joy this week? Actually, I've been thinking a lot about what joy means versus happiness, because I do think there is a difference between happiness and joy. And I think that Oftentimes we're taught that we want happiness, especially in a Latter-day Saint context where we talk about this plan of happiness, which is perceived as this like long-term thing. But I don't think that happiness is is defined very long-term. I think that joy is actually a long duration of positive vibes in your life or whatever. So I've been thinking a lot about that and thinking how there are lots of relationships that I'm building that are bringing me and especially queer relationships, social media relationships, other people who are like, Oh, social media is the worst. Sometimes when you're, especially when you're queer and you don't have a huge community around you, this is a great way to build like really meaningful relationships. So I've been putting extra effort into those relationships and b- building and maintaining them this week. And that has just brought me like sustained joy rather than just these sparks of happiness.
1: I really appreciate that perspective. Thank you. Thanks. All right, Tiana. Hi. Do you have any queer joy you'd like to share the, from this week? I
2: do. I actually came prepared for this. <laughs> oh, me, Good job. It took me all of five minutes to think of it. But no, the other day, my dad sent me a text message. My sister and I sent me a text message with a queer joke in it. He said, why did the buffalo go to the pride parade?
0: <laughs>
2: because he has a by son. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, the joke is, like, silly and dumb, but really what brought me queer joy is that my dad sent it to me.
0: The fact so. that your dad is making dad jokes that are simultaneously queer dad jokes is the best. I have, yeah, I have right? not heard a queer dad joke. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's goals. <laughs> mm, yeah, get family members to be able to be okay telling queer dad jokes. Love it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna let Colette introduce you since you all are friends. You know each other. Yeah, and actually, before we launch into the queer in sixty seconds, I was thinking before this. So, Jed and I knew each other in Boise. Boise was where I met the my first ex girlfriend. That we were roommates. We were in a different ward when I was living with that girlfriend. When that girlfriend left, I moved into the ward that Tiana's was in. And then I was in that ward for a couple, maybe two, two and a half, three years. And that was back when I was, quote, still straight. Because, you know, I was still straight except for this woman.
2: Strange. That's what I was also still straight when I was in that ward with you.
1: So that's why I was curious before we launch into the Queer in 60 Seconds segment, just I'm trying to remember how we then ended up coming out to each other because we've stayed Facebook friends and everything, but somehow I couldn't remember. Do you remember it all?
2: So after you left, we just lived in our own little bubbles when we we were in the ward together. We were on the compassionate service committee together. Uh, Oh,
1: yes, we were.
2: Yeah. So we spent a fair amount of time together, but I, I just knew that you were going through your own thing and I was going through my own thing and we just did not talk about it. But after you moved back to Salt Lake, I remember you posted a photo from Affirmation, and I was like, hold on now. (laughs) Wait just two hot seconds. (laughs) (laughs) So I think just through social media, we had deduced Mm -hmm. that we were both queer, but we didn't officially come out to each other until, uh, I think it was Affirmation 2019. So Okay. Yeah.
1: Thank you for reminding me because I could not remember. And thank goodness for social media. It was really funny when I was first starting to deal with stuff. I reconnected with another person in North Star that I knew from middle school. And I was like, I- you're in here? T- like, what's going on? <laughs> so thanks for social media. And I'm glad we've been able to reconnect. And we're so excited to hear your story. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'd love to hear your Queer in 60 seconds, which really is like, Three to five
2: minutes. What's your queer Mormon story? My queer Mormon story. Um You know what? I also tried to come prepared for this, and it was taking me like eight minutes. I'm like, no, we gotta boil this down. <laughs> it can take eight minutes if we need. <laughs> no, we do not need to discuss it all. <laughs> so, yeah, my name's Tiana Matson. I live in Boise, Idaho, and I'm a lesbian. People can use gay or queer or whatever. Like, I'm just not straight. Just don't call me a heterosexual person. That's just offensive. um so uh I grew up in Vegas Las Vegas Nevada and in the Vegas area we lived there till I was about 16 and I was in second grade when the first time I noticed my queerness I was like I don't understand why all these little girls say they have crushes on boys like how does one deduce they have a crush on a boy this just does not does not make sense to me. And so that was kind of like the first time that I noticed that I was different. But yeah, we ended up moving to Utah, my junior year of high school. That's where I graduated high school. And then I went started my college career down in Cedar City at Southern Utah University. And that's where I had a lot of really formative experience. That's kind of where things clicked. I remember my freshman year of college. I was like, oh, I'm a lesbian. That's what all of these experiences I've had growing up mean. And it freaked me out. I was like, nope, we got to tamp this down. We're going to... This is just a temptation from Satan. We don't need to address this. I just kind of stuffed it in the box and didn't really address it for a long time. And from there, I was at SUU for three and a half years. But from there, I ended up serving a mission. I served in Cleveland, Ohio. And I was there for... I wasn't there for very long. I think I was there about five months. And I had my first manic episode with a couple of dissociative episodes and so when I came home from my mission I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and that's when my like queer journey and my mental health journey just kind of started weaving together and so when I got home from my mission I ended up transferring to Boise State University because my family had moved up here to Boise by then. I graduated from college in 2016 with a degree in digital media production and cinematography I did the freelance thing for a little bit, and now I am working for a real estate company doing a lot of their marketing content and filming fancy houses to put on the market. So that's where I am in life. I came out publicly as gay in... I was right at the beginning of the pandemic. So like all chances of dating for the first time went right out the window. (laughs) So uh, yeah, that's kind of me. I hope that's been close to at least three and a half to five minutes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's really great. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. There's stuff in there that I didn't know (laughs) because obviously we're so good about talking about stuff when we're both (laughs) closeted. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your mission and how you decided to go on a mission as you were dealing with potentially some mental health stuff and kind of the queer stuff and just how that all played out
2: yeah that is a story to tell (laughs) so when I first started college I was a music education major and I had finished most of my music classes and started into my education classes and side note that was the point where I was like I do not want to do this education is not for me (laughs) Anyways, I was in a, a, a SPED class, a special education class for teachers learning about different special needs and things that you might see in a classroom. And we got to, it was just like maybe two paragraphs on bipolar disorder. And I was sitting there next to my classmate and I was like, oh my gosh, this is my life. This, these two paragraphs explain my entire life. And I was like, mind blown. And so I brought it up to a roommate I brought it up to my mom and both of them were just like, oh no, you have to be kind of crazy to be bipolar. Like you have to be really manic and like all over the place, but you're functioning fine. So like, don't worry about it. And I was like, I don't think so. And so then I brought it up with my doctor, which in all fairness, I hadn't really seen him much. Like he was my doctor up here in Boise and I was going to school in Cedars. Anyways, I brought it up with him and he was like, we'll monitor it, but I've really only seen depressive Episodes from you, so we'll just treat it as depression. Which I mean, Colette, you probably know this, but most people don't realize that if you have bipolar disorder, your episodes are both super high and super low, and they can fluctuate really easily. But with depression, it's just the depressive episodes. And so, the way you treat that is generally with a medication that's an SSRI, a, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which means it's helping your brain hold on to serotonin. But if you're bipolar, If you get too much serotonin in there, then you can go manic and have those kind of crazy episodes. I went out on my mission with an SSRI and I was, I mean, I I was functioning okay. It was stressful and it kept me busy. And I had a fantastic companion who I'm still good friends with today, actually. And... It was just, it was really difficult. I started having, I don't know that I was having panic attacks. They might have been just like mild ones. And I just was not managing my stress very well. And I started having issues with the elders because I'm, I don't like authority. <laughs> and, you know, as a sister missionary, when you're like coming up on your 22nd birthday, and these kids are like 18, 19 years old, and they think they're in charge of you, it's not go well. So I was having issues with the elders and it got to a point where I'd had an argument with the zone leaders about something. And so the APs and the mission president brought me in to a meeting with the mission president. And, and like, I don't, they didn't necessarily say anything that was really super harmful, but just the whole situation was really upsetting for me and caused some trauma that I I've worked through now, but it did cause some enough trauma that I had to work through it in therapy. And so that happened. And then like a week later, I got transferred to the most difficult area in the mission with a companion that was not American. And English was not her first language. And she just didn't get it. She was like, this obnoxious American girl just needs to get her poop together. It just kind of spiraled from there. And I I, I just couldn't handle the stress anymore. And so I started having dissociative episodes. Like I remember sitting there in an appointment with I don't remember if they were members or investigators. I just remember being in the appointment and I just completely zoned out. And my companion, I heard her talking and I remember seeing the dog sitting on the floor, but everything else was gone. I don't remember who was in the room. I don't remember how we got back to the apartment. I just went to bed and just slept for three days. And and it just was not getting better. And so I called my mission president. I was like... I got to go home. This is not something that we're going to be able to put a band-aid on here. That was really rough. He, he didn't really believe me. He's, Oh, it'll be fine. Just take it easy today. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like I cannot function. And I was like, I need to go home. And he tried to have me talk with the mission therapist and he tried to have me do this. And it got to the point where I was like, I just had to come out to him because I knew that would be my Trump card. And I was like, president, I am gay. I was attracted to my first companion and I need you to send me home. And he's like, oh yeah, okay. We should probably do that then. Honestly, it was probably for the best that it turned out that way. Cause I don't know that I would have come out to my parents at all if it hadn't, because then I had to like call my parents and be like, Hey, I'm coming home and this is why. And I just remember they were like, okay, well, we'll just deal with it when you get home. I'm just glad that you're safe and that you're, you'll, We'll take care of it. It, Yeah, my parents handled it actually pretty well. It took several years to kind of like work through my coming out with them together and just like overcoming our homophobia together. But yeah, that was my mission. I'm glad that I went. I'm glad that I had that experience and I'm grateful for the people that I met. But it was really difficult and it was really difficult to come home the way I did. Yeah, there's that story.
0: (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. I also have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So there are two things that I want to highlight here from your story. That one is the gaslighting that takes place when people say, here are the parameters of what mental health and mental illness looks like, and it, and you don't fit them. That happens Mm-hmm. very often and it happens very often for people who are assigned female at birth i feel like even mm-hmm. more this is fairly common but then also as soon as people recognize okay yeah you have that diagnosis right somebody's checked the box that says you have that then there's another gaslighting that takes place of then your experiences are in your mind it isn't coming from a reality when in fact there are very real and traumatic triggers that bring on symptoms, especially a bipolar disorder with extremes. So mm-hmm. what you're talking about, you're talking about major triggers here, yeah. like the moving, switching companions, being on a mission while being queer in general. These are situations that are easily going to trigger some sort of episode. So I'm sorry that you went through all that. And especially that people didn't have the tools to address it with you and that you were also gaslit. Like that Mm -hmm. is what happened.
2: Yeah. I, when I first got home, that was the first thing I went straight to my doctor. I was like, this is what happened. He's like, Oh yeah, you do have bipolar. (laughs) So I mean, in that way it was kind of validating, but you're right. Kate. It should not have gotten to that point. And as I've grown and learn more about my illness and how to take care of myself and advocate for myself. Now I'm like, that's appalling. But at the time it just, I didn't know any better. I didn't know anything about mental health conditions and how to take care of them or what to expect from other people. I'm grateful it didn't cause any more trauma than it did.
0: And it's interesting that you're talking about these two paragraphs that you say, like, I knew from reading these this just little excerpt of this about myself. And Mm -hmm. then where you're going and approaching people, people have this idea of what mental illness looks like and what it should look like. Mm -hmm. And when you don't fit those boxes, it's like, no, it can't be. So you knew early on, but people kept denying that. So I'm Mm -hmm. sorry that happened.
2: Yeah, it is what it is. It was, that was well over 10 years ago now, but it's, we've all learned and grown. (laughs) I'd like to extend grace where I can.
1: That's very gracious of you as a therapist. It does make me upset that there's still so much stigma. And so all three of us actually have diagnosable mental health illness conditions. Mm -hmm. I have depression. Kate and Tiana both have bipolar disorder and they're real things. (laughs) And I, I think it's so hard because Yes, it's getting better and stigma is less. And I think depression's more understood, bipolar, not as much, but it is still a real thing. So I hope people can recognize that and get the help they need. Mm-hmm. And I definitely have feelings about this. I also want to note, like, yes, we all have mental health conditions. It's not because we're queer. <laughs> That's another part yes. of our identity. <laughs> people who are queer do have a higher rate of mental illness, but it's not because we're queer. I just want to make that very clear for anyone listening. And if you are listening and are dealing with mental health issues, I hope that you're able to get the help and support you need. And if you're going to a doctor or therapist that's not believing you, not giving you the help, find someone that will, because you deserve that to be able to get to where you need to be in a healthy place. That being said, whatever's taking place can be triggered by queer
0: issues, by parents who aren't affirming, by other people who aren't affirming the disassociative states and these fluctuations in different hormone levels, all of that can still be impacted by the people around you and particularly about your queerness as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've had that happen as well before I came out publicly. I reached a point because I couldn't reconcile my faith and my sexuality that I did get to a point where I was actively making plans to end my life. And that was, I mean that I have not been that depressed or that desperate since then. And that's partially because I eliminated one of those triggers. Yes, it was partially due to my sexuality, but that's because I couldn't reconcile the trigger and my identity. And so, yeah, that's definitely something that really needs to be stressed is that queerness does not cause mental illnesses. Triggers associated with your queerness can, though. And it's also interesting. I was thinking just over the last couple of days, is that I often feel like I have two individual life stories, and it, in my head it kind of looks like a DNA strand where it's a double helix that they they're together, and at some points they connect, but they're also two individual issues. Where I over the last ten years I've been working through my sexual identity and my sexual orientation and my queerness and everything and in parallel has been me working through my bipolar and working on depressive episodes and learning what my manic episodes look like and managing medication and, and self-care and things like that. And there are at certain points where they connect and they, they are the same issue. But for most of it, they're like two different things that are just weaving their way through my life. And so it's it's really interesting to kind of see that dichotomy. And as I've actually become more open and and honest with my sexual orientation and just my living authentically, I've discovered that the two have, have really come to mesh together because I don't feel like I'm having to hide these two separate things. Like, I'm more open about my bipolar, I'm more open about advocacy work, I'm more open about my queerness, and I finally have come to a point where all of these different pieces of me have come together to make one whole Tiana. (laughs) Very cool.
1: I'm not sure if you're comfortable with this, but I would be curious in talking about bipolar disorder, would you mind talking a little bit about what manic looks like to you? Because I think that's very much not understood by a lot of people. And there is the idea that people understand depression and what that may be like, but manic is a little different and maybe not as well understood. Is that something mm-hmm. you're comfortable talking about?
2: Um yes. Right before my mission, when I first really discovered that I had bipolar disorder, I knew that I was probably bipolar too. I hadn't really had a full-blown manic episode. I hadn't reached a point of psychosis or and I hadn't had a, a dissociative episode. And I hadn't really had too many of the classic like big manic episode symptoms. And so that's how I knew that I was probably bipolar too. I do have, when I am manic, I get really irritable. I feel like I'm moving a zillion miles an hour and I'm just like hyper-focused on things. And if anybody talks to me, I'm just like, ah, you know, you're just like disrupting this maze of hamster wheels going on inside my head. And that's where most of the irritability comes from. And so I found that going on walks, just like, and I I had a really mild manic episode when I was at work about six months ago. And my, there was something going on with my computer and I was really frustrated. I turned to my coworker. I'm like, Andrew, I am going for a walk. Don't come looking for me. (laughs) And so I just walked around the office park there for a while. And, and so that really, knowing those triggers, knowing what my symptoms look like has been very helpful. So irritability, moving super fast in, inside my head. Those are probably the two biggest ones, but also one that I guess I do have some euphoria. Sometimes that looks like I just feel like I'm on top of the world and I'm like supercharged. Nobody can get in my way and I'm going to go boom, boom, boom. And like. Get stuff done. And that, I mean, that's probably my favorite symptom. (laughs) But that's also one where I'm like, okay, maybe we need to tamp this down a little bit. It's very common for people to go and spend a lot of money to take a lot of risks. And I used to do that as well. I didn't have a lot of money to spend, so it disappeared very quickly. But I've learned how to manage that as well, thankfully. And then one that I did not know was a symptom until I, I had a really full-blown manic episode at the beginning of 2019. Mm -hmm. And that was caused actually from a medication change. I'd been feeling like more depressed than normal. And so we adjusted my SSRI and sent me right through the roof. And so this symptom is a little bit embarrassing to talk about, but that's when I learned that hypersexuality is a symptom of mania and bipolar, but I was super horny. (laughs) like all the time. And you know, it and I was still super active in the church. Like I still believed in like the law of chastity and this and that and the other. But I threw caution to the wind, <laughs> I didn't have any like intimate intercourse or anything with another person. It was all by myself. But it was still that was the first time that I was like, this is weird. I do not how to know how to manage this. I have no idea what to do with this. And so that's when I started seeing my current therapist and I was like, I don't know what's going on. Please help me. I don't have coping skills for this. I know how to manage a depressive episode. I know what those triggers look like and I know how to take care of that and take care of myself, but this is all new territory. I've been seeing that therapist for almost three straight years now and it has been the biggest life changer, like just being able to have a consistent therapist And we worked through that manic episode and then we kept working on more stuff and we kept working on more stuff. And it was honestly like, even though that manic episode was kind of crazy and I was like, I don't know what what to think of this. It really was a huge blessing, so to speak. Yeah. That's kind of what mania looks like for me. And I'm grateful that I had that episode because it's taught me a lot about myself and how to take care of myself. And it's led me in a direction to address a lot of trauma that, I didn't know I had. So, yeah.
0: Oh, my gosh. What you're saying resonates so much with me. I also have bipolar, too. So the manic episodes aren't, they're dissociative, but not necessarily um, what I would label a psychotic episode. But the impulsivity, I I struggle Mm -hmm. really hardcore with impulsivity, and that leads to a lot of, Crazy charges to my bank account, which then I feel a lot of shame about. I actually yeah. feel more shame about manic episodes than I do depressive episodes. And that's something I have to work through. So, you talking about how you can be open with an affirming therapist who recognizes that these are what your triggers are and how to work through them is actually really important and crucial. And you're making me think that <laughs> I want to switch things up with, with who I've got so that I can find somebody that mm-hmm. truly knows the best way to handle these things.
2: Mm-hmm. And it, that is a really, that is a, a tall order. Honestly, it's kind of funny how I ended up with my therapist, actually, because I, I didn't have a job at the time and my parents weren't really able to support me. And so I went to the bishop and I was like, hey, I'm dealing with this problem and I really need To see a therapist, and so he sent me to LDS Family Services, and poor woman that I saw first, I I started telling her my issues, and she's like, "I have no idea how to help you." (laughs) (laughs) I think she was brand new, like recently graduated or something, and so they referred me out to my current therapist, who used to work at LDS Family Services, and yeah, that was just fantastic. It's it's really been good to to work with her.
0: And your therapist is also a, affirming of your queer identity as well?
2: Yeah. Cuz that's I a don't... hard
0: thing with LDS family services.
2: Mhm. Yeah, I know that was at first when I went to see her it really was just meant to be short term. And so I wasn't expecting to to stay very long, but the board just offered to keep paying for my visits and so it's like all right, I'll just keep going. It's really been interesting too because when I first saw her I was still a believing member and I believe she's still active in the church. We have some conversations where I'm like, you are a lot more nuanced than I thought you were, but she's been super affirming of everything. And she's been on this whole journey with me and she's just been like, I am here to support you and however you need me. And we're just going to address what you need to address. And if you want to leave the church, great. If you want to stay great, I just want to make sure that you're happy and healthy. And so, man, she's just, Top notch.
0: (laughs) So grateful that you found somebody like that.
1: It's not as common as we hope, but I'm so glad you found
0: somebody. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: I really appreciate you being open. I know people don't talk about hypomanic and manic episodes as much because it's not as talked about. So there is more shame and sometimes stigma, Mm -hmm. but it's a real thing. And I, I think it's good to highlight so people can understand. I remember I was talking to someone who had just met with their doctor They're like, I'm actually really relieved. I was just diagnosed with bipolar disorder and it makes sense. Like this whole time I thought I had some really weird depression and the antidepressant I was on just wasn't working. And so it's really nice to be validated and get the help I need. But it's also hard, as you mentioned, like that euphoria when you are in a manic episode can be very nice. And so Mm -hmm. it can be hard to want to stay medicated sometimes it's it's a tricky one and i'm so grateful you've gotten the support you need to be able to just get in a healthy place.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something that i really want to stress for a lot of people. I remember in high school i had a couple friends that were dealing with depression and they just hated the stigma around medication and so they were just like always wanting to get off of it and i'm like don't do that. <laughs> you do not manage well when you're not on it. And medication is not always for everybody. There are different ways to, to manage your mental health. I found for me medication and different coping skills and just learning my triggers and going to therapy, like a combination of all of those is the best for me. And I think that's the best for everybody. Usually if you can manage it without a medication, that's great. But if you can't do not feel bad about it. If I showed you my, my bedside table drawer, I think I've got like eight pill bottles in there. And I take some in the morning. I take some in the evening. I take some some days. Some not. And so there's no shame in it. And actually, so Kate, I don't know if you know about this. Uh, It might be helpful for you too. But there, I have found that I really love Reddit just to find like anonymous support for things. And there are a couple of bipolar support groups on Reddit and people get on there and they talk about their experience. And I know... I've seen a couple of people get on and ask about medications. What's been your experience with this one or your experience with that one or whatever. And so like just finding other people that understand your experience sometimes can go a long way in just validating what you're experiencing.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that. I didn't know that. I have a pretty strong support system that know what's going on. So I like reach out oftentimes, but mm-hmm. What you're talking about, I think, can be talked about more broadly, especially for people suffering from suicidal ideation or suicidality, because not talking about it is actually really detrimental. So being able to actually find the support system, and even if it is a Reddit support system somewhere, find a support system, reach out to the the National Suicide Hotline or whatever. I've done that as well. I, I'm, I talk pretty openly about that not talking about it is actually not going to solve your problem. You actually Mm -hmm. really need to Mm -hmm. recognize that there are people out there who can affirm your experience. So thank you for mentioning that.
2: Yeah. And actually I'm glad that you mentioned the national suicide hotline, just specific for Idaho. I don't know about other places, but there's also the Idaho suicide prevention hotline, but also for queer people and trans specifically, there are hotlines specifically for queer people. There's the Trevor Project that you can call. I believe Trans Life is for gender non people that can call. And whether you're in crisis or not, you can call and get support and talk to somebody that can help.
1: I love that. And I know that you're also pretty involved with NAMI there in Boise. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious how you got involved in that and what that looks like.
2: Yeah. So NAMI is it's an AMI for your listeners, it's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It started in the 70s and they do a lot of advocacy work and education work to just bring awareness to mental illnesses and mental health conditions. And one of their biggest services that they offer are mental health emotional support groups for anybody. You don't even have to have a diagnosis just if you're dealing with a mental health condition. And so in Idaho specifically, All of our meetings are on Zoom other than our Rainbow Circle, which I can talk about in a minute. Yeah, all of our meetings are over Zoom, and we have a meeting every single day of the week, sometimes a couple times during the day. And so that's been a huge help. And I first started attending support group meetings about two and a half years ago at the suggestion of my therapist, actually, she was like, "Do you want to like, see if there's other people around that understand your experience. And I was like, I don't know, where am I going to find these people? And so I started Googling and I found NAMI. I also found DBSA, which is the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance. And the two organizations operate quite differently, but they both offer support groups. And that's how I got involved. And so I was just attending regular support groups meetings. This last summer, I did have a really severe depressive episode with a couple of really bad panic attacks mixed in there. And, and so I, I saw a post that that NAMI was doing a peer to peer class, which is an eight week class that is just to educate people on, on mental illnesses and stuff. And so I was like, I need to sign up for something. I need to get my mind in a good place and see other people on a regular basis. And so I signed up for that class and it was facilitated by the local affiliate president. And so I started talking to her about this group that I run called Rainbow Circle. And she was like, oh my gosh, we've been wanting to start a queer specific emotional support group, but we haven't had anybody to do it. And we didn't want to start it without an actual queer person involved. And she was like, will you come and let us help you? We can like facilitate, we can offer you training. We can offer you resources, like whatever you want, whatever you need, just let me know. And I was like, sweet baby Jesus. Thank you so much. <laughs> Cause I had, I've been kind of running rainbow circle by myself for almost a year. And I was like, I know this is a resource that is needed, but I cannot do it by myself. And so that's really how I got deeply involved with NAMI, and so now I sit on the board of our local affiliate as the diversity chair, I think is what my official title is, but I my main focus is Rainbow Circle or LGBTQ+ emotional support group. So that's how I got involved with NAMI. Way
1: cool. And yeah, I want to definitely hear more about Rainbow Circle because I know you and I have talked about it and it seems mm-hmm. like an awesome resource. I, I want to hear how that come to be? What does that look like? How can people get involved? All the mm-hmm. things.
2: Yeah. I love Rainbow Circle. It's my baby and I am just so excited for how it's grown and how it's moving forward and everything. And I'm very excited for it. So I did not start Rainbow Circle. I so that that affirmation conference actually that we came out to each other. I also met, and I think you might may know them, Debbie and Amy. Yeah, where do I start this story? <laughs> so I think I'll start with the conference. So we connected at the conference, and you're like, "Hey, come to this workshop. It's just for queer women." We sat next to each other and. I don't remember what the prompt was. I think we were supposed to like say our name and something interesting about us and like our favorite breakfast cereal or something. I don't remember what it was. And it got around to me and I completely forgot the prompt. And I was like, I'm Tiana. I'm from Boise, Idaho. And my toothbrush color is red. I think, I don't know, it's completely wrong. <laughs> and so the person next sitting next to me was Amy and Debbie. And then I believe Sunny was sitting on the other side of them. And they were all like, oh, we live in Nampa. And Sonny was like, I live in Meridian. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's more queer people here. And that's how we connected. It's got to be divine intervention that my brain just went out the window because I don't know that we would have ever deduced that we were from the Boise area if I hadn't. And that's how we connected. And over the summer, crazy family events going on. My parents moved to Pocatello and, and everything. So I wasn't able to connect with anybody here again until September And they were like, Hey, we are starting this group called Rainbow Circle. And it's for, it's like a pseudo like church support group kind of thing, mostly for LDS LGBT people just to connect with each other. And I was like, okay, cool. That sounds great. And I went and I was like, very quiet. Like I was hardly out at all. And I didn't know what to say. (laughs) So I just showed up a couple of times. And as I became more comfortable, like I really started connecting with them more. We've become really close friends. But over time, we realized how much this group was needed in the Valley just as a a regular support group for um, LGBT people, not just members of the church. And it was another year and a half of trying to do it over Zoom because the pandemic is (sighs) the pandemic. That's all I have to say. And uh, it just was floundering. And Debbie and Amy weren't able to manage it anymore. Amy's been in grad school, and they've just been so swamped with life. And so I was like, this is a resource that I know I need. And so if I need it, there's got to be other people here that need it. And so I just carried it forward. I have another friend here that has been helping as well. But it just wasn't really thriving. We weren't able to like get the word out or get very many people involved until I got involved with NAMI, and I told them about this group and I was like, I can't really carry it anymore. I still have people contacting me asking about resources and I was like, I this is too much for me. It's too much to carry. And so with NAMI being involved, they've offered us facilitator training. They showed us their model and how they run meetings, which is like fantastic and it's very intuitive. And they've offered to help with doing social activities and all sorts of stuff. And as we've grown with NAMI, we've been able to find several more facilitators, get a larger, more diverse people involved. And we've had, I think since September, we've had over a hundred different new people showing up. It's not that many to each meeting. Many of them have only come once or twice, but over four months to have a hundred unique individuals come through the door for this for this meeting has just been amazing.
1: So incredible. That's amazing. And such a great resource. I know I've referred people to that who live up in Boise and I'm like, if I had realized I was queer when I was up there, like that would Mm -hmm. have been such a great resource.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what I hear from a lot of people too. They're like, this is fantastic. Like this is something that I've always needed. I had our last meeting before Christmas, we had a participant come that was in crisis and that was the first time that I had been in a position where I've had to help somebody else get through some severe suicidal ideation. And I was just like, I'm grateful I was there, but also I have not received training for that. And I'm like, whew. So that's one reason I'm really grateful for NAMI because I, I, I work really closely with the state representative. And she's like, yes, absolutely. We'll get whoever in your group wants to get a suicide prevention training. We'll get that for you. We'll get you signed up and everything. And so just being with NAMI has been fantastic and just huge to just support the community in in a new way that's been really needed.
1: Yeah. Thank you. And, and thank you for bringing attention to rainbow circle and NAMI. I think those are great resources Mm
2: -hmm. and NAMI
1: is everywhere that you can Google NAMI, find your local affiliate. Some are going to be more active than others, but it's a great resource for individuals Mm -hmm. to be aware of.
2: Yeah. If you want to get in touch with Rainbow Circle, uh, since we have a Zoom meeting, anybody can join that. But especially if you're in the Treasure Valley area, you can find us on Facebook, Rainbow Circle Treasure Valley, or you can get in touch with us through our website, RainbowCircleTV.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And I'll make sure I get those from you to put in the show notes Mm -hmm. so people can easily get those. I know you mentioned you also want to talk about a pizza, your story you haven't talked about yet, but I know you had a brother pass away and you wanted to talk about that and how that's played into your story. And I'd Mm -hmm. love to hear more about that.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for mentioning that. Normally that is something that I don't ever bring up. I don't really talk about because it is actually a very unique trauma that I, and part of the reason I wanted to bring it up today was because I have not been able to find anybody that has experienced this. And I have looked online. I have asked different Reddit groups because that's a resource that I like to tap is just like finding other people. And I just have not been able to find anybody else. And so when I was eight years old, it was literally the day after my eighth birthday. My mom had taken my brother and I, his name was Peter. And she had taken Peter and I to our normal yearly... Childhood checkups because our birthdays are pretty close together, January and February, and the, the doctor was just doing a normal exam and she found uh, a mass in his abdomen and she's like, I don't know what this is, let's let's check it out, <laughs> and uh, come to find out it was like a grapefruit-sized tumor in his abdomen for a three-year-old. That's like massive. It's massive for anybody, but it was huge, and he had surgery. I think it was like end of February or something like that. And we thought it was over and done with and taken care of. And then over the next several months, he started developing seizures. And my mom did what she could to get him treatment. A lot of doctors gaslighting said that it wasn't anything because they only really happened when he slept. But she finally got a doctor to take him, take her seriously. And in that time, he had stopped walking because it was so painful in his legs to, to walk and his speech had become slurred. And so it was pretty apparent that like the cancer had spread and he finally started treatment. He was in and out of the hospital for about a year before he had a severe brain hemorrhage. And then he passed away right before my 10th birthday. So it was two years of a lot of slow burn trauma basically. And I didn't address it until just like in the last year and a half. So that's 23 years of just being like, oh, it, it happened. It was Part of my past, and I'm not really dealing with it anymore. And that's just not the case. And I realized really recently, just in the last few months, that like even if it's complex trauma, where it's just like little bits of trauma that add up, it just affects every part of your life. And at this point, like looking back on everything and really finally unpacking it all, I, I realized that there was a, a specific moment seeing my brother in the hospital after his stroke, that moment has, what has triggered all of my panic attacks. And as soon as I like figured that out, they just went away. Like I, I still have them every once in a while and they're really super mild. To be, and I know how to take care of them and they're like taken care of in like five to 10 minutes and we move on. But like I used to, I've had to go to the hospital a couple of times because my panic attacks were so severe. And as soon as I was able to like uncover that and finally address that trauma, like those massive panic attacks went away. And just the last year or so finally unpacking just like a little bit at a time and just like really letting myself finally feel those emotions. And it's not over and done with. It'll be a process. That's twenty three years of stuffing it way down that I need to unpack. So it'll take time. But yeah, it's just a really unique trauma of going through 2 years of a sibling being so severely ill and not knowing what's going to happen to them, not knowing if your parents are even going to be at home when you get off get out of school, just having so much instability and seeing so much seeing my parents try and process that trauma as well on top of everything. It's a very unique trauma to have to unpack and trying to find somebody else that has been through that specifically. If one of your listeners out there happens to have been through something similar, you are not alone. Feel free to reach out. Honestly, I would love to find other people to connect with over this. And it's just, I don't know, I, I've determined that it's a beautiful part of my story. And and I have developed things that really connect me with my brother and, and my past and and have helped me move forward so yeah
1: thank you for sharing it is so important we talk about trauma i talk about trauma as a therapist and i think we've got to normalize the fact that trauma happens because we're human Mm -hmm. and trauma isn't just the quote big unquote things like you went to war you were sexually assaulted yes those are traumas But I think we go through so many other traumas in our lives and don't necessarily recognize and realize them as such because, oh, it's just life. It's not a big deal. Like, this just happened to me. But trauma can happen in so many ways. And I'm coming more and more to understand and appreciate that to be cliche, the body keeps the score. There's a really popular book um, about trauma and how it's stored in the body. And as I work with individuals, them kind of making those connections of, oh my gosh, this is where this is coming from, because this was something I never dealt with. And it was a trauma that I didn't really recognize as such. And so of course, I'm still struggling when this sort of thing comes up again. And I love being a therapist. It's just people and their experiences, they're so unique and there's so much healing that can be done. And so I'm so grateful that you're getting that help, even if you haven't been able to connect with others, that you have a wonderful therapist to work through, to make these connections
2: mm-hmm. and get
1: the help you need. Because yes, having a chronically ill sibling for two years and then the, a sibling that passed away, those are all traumas. And maybe you label them as micro traumas, but it does add up. Like Mm -hmm. how is that when you don't have the stability to know if your parents are going to be home or if you're going to be alone because they're in the hospital with your sibling, like that Mm -hmm. can be a trauma. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I I really appreciate you highlighting that.
0: I think it's really important to pull out something that you said. And that is that you notice once you noticed it, then the panic attacks didn't go away, but they subsided significantly Mm -hmm. and talking about trauma, living in your body and talking about, neurotransmitters. And once you recognize that a pathway is set because of that, you can then Mm -hmm. work to overcome that neuropathway and create a different neuropathway. And it sounds like you've done that successfully, that you've Mm -hmm. managed to be able to see where that neuropathway where your body was literally responding to a trigger that your mind has now been able to completely recreate a new neuropathway. That is... Mm -hmm just it's amazing that our bodies can do that first of all that it recognizes trauma over and over again that it understands the triggers and then also that our brains can create these new neuropathways so mm-hmm. i think that is a really interesting element of your story but again like colette said like the whole experience is trauma the whole experience is instability and insecurity and yeah. and not having the care because care has been placed somewhere else, that also is a trauma that there might, might've been places where you needed care that were insecure. You didn't know if it would come when you needed it. So that's also a really hard element.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do want to, so while you were talking, I, I remembered another a different trigger recently that I had a panic attack. Actually I've stepped away from the church pretty significantly And I actually was in a NAMI training, and just one part in the training, they were discussing fidelity to the model of just how they run the meetings. And what they meant by that was that this is a proven method, and we want to make sure that you're committed to this method for your safety and for the benefit of everybody in your group. But as soon as they said the word fidelity, it was just like, all these red flags coming in. I spent 33 years in this church where all about fidelity and everything like that and, and as part of their commitment to following this model they just read a couple of slides but they were all together and I was like this is again too much for me I had to just like shut my laptop and leave and I was like I couldn't handle it and I started panicking because it reminded me too much of the temple ceremony and I was used to having panic attacks and I just gave myself five minutes to do my self-care routine and moved on less than 10 minutes. And I was like through it and moved on. And I'm like, I know I'm in a safe place. And I know that this is not something that can harm me. And I know that this is just part of my experience and it's fine. We're okay. We got through it. So it's possible. Like I know for some people, like that could be a huge trigger and like completely ruin the rest of their day, but just hope for other people to, to realize that they can get, get through those.
1: I love that. And I love one thing that keeps coming to mind for me and that I tell clients a lot is that the brain wants to heal, just like the body wants to heal after you have a cut or, you know, Mm -hmm. a broken bone or something. The brain wants to heal as well. And it's designed to heal. Our bodies are incredible that way. But sometimes we do need that extra help through the form of support, through therapy, through understanding, whatever, that we need to get. To continue to heal. And I'm just so grateful that you've been able to figure out what works for you to be able to move through that and get those healing juices flowing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I- I'm grateful too. I
1: think we've covered everything we planned on talking about. I know it's been a little all over the place. I just am so grateful for you sharing your experiences with queerness, with trauma, with mental illness. I think this will really resonate with a lot of listeners. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about that we haven't brought up? I don't
2: think so. Yeah, I I like to, people are multidimensional. And so like mental health and trauma and queerness do not exist in vacuums. And so I think it's important to address the intersectionality with all of those. And so I'm glad I got a chance to share all of that. Sometimes I feel like I have like unique different parts of me that don't get to come out at the same time together.
0: I also want to honor something that you said right at the very beginning, and that is that you had to make a decision about these triggers, all sorts of different triggers that you've had. And it seems we've skipped over that there is religious trauma as well. You've mentioned a couple of times these instances of religious trauma, and that Mm. is also an element of that double helix of the multifaceted person that you are, that that is also a real trauma as well. Mm -hmm. and causes triggers in those things so I want to honor that you've brought that up a couple times and that that is also a part of your story
2: Mm -hmm. yeah I appreciate that Kate that's one that I don't actually discuss a lot I have some close queer friends that are former members of the church that I discuss that with and we all have very similar shared experiences but yeah I don't overall I don't bring it up very much
1: do you want to elaborate on that at all? Cause this can be a space to share that a lot of listeners will resonate with it, but mm-hmm. I also understand that is a very private thing for a lot of people that mm-hmm. you may not want to share. And that is totally valid.
2: Yeah. So to preface this, I do want to say I, this has been about two years ago now that I recorded this, but I was on an episode of latter gay stories podcast with Kyle Ashworth. And Everything that I said on that podcast, I 100% stand behind because that's where I was in my journey at the time. So if somebody goes back and listens to that, they're like, things have changed. Yes, things have changed. People grow and they...
1: People change. That's part of being human.
2: Exactly. And I just, that's my story then may resonate with somebody differently than my story now. And so that's totally valid. But yeah, so I... The first time that I really realized that religious trauma is valid was actually from one of my visiting teachers and I was like totally believing at the time this was probably 2017 actually and she'd come over and we were just talking and she was like I'm so embarrassed to say this but I need to talk to somebody about it and you seem really cool and she was like I do not enjoy going to the temple I really just I hate it And I will intentionally let my recommend lapse and kind of as like a treat for my husband, I will go with him once every couple of years. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that there were other people that felt that way because I've been telling my mom for years, like, I just don't like going. I am uncomfortable for a myriad of reasons and I just don't enjoy it. And it's not a good experience for me. And my mom always said, it's not supposed to be that way. Like it's supposed to be like, like peaceful and rejuvenating. And I'm like, that's not my experience. And I don't know why. And as I've stepped away from the church and allowed myself to listen to other people's stories, I have discovered that I'm really not alone in that, that a lot of women, especially really struggle with the temple ceremonies. And I'm still single. I've been single for most of my life. (laughs) And so, like, it didn't really click for me that as part of the temple ceremony that a woman was essentially not allowed to have a connection with God unless it was through her husband. And so, like, when I realized that, I was like, well, my gosh, that is a problem. (laughs) And so that's kind of where my first crack started. Let me rephrase that. That's where my first crack started as far as, like, the temple ceremony goes. I still had a myriad of reasons why I didn't enjoy going just as a larger person. You get really warm very quickly and chairs are always super close together. And so if you're physically uncomfortable, like, it's very difficult to mentally be in a frame of mind to participate fully. Anyways, my biggest kind of shelf item has always been like, why do I need to, why do I need to follow God's will? I feel like he's not listening to me. I feel like he's not taking into account what's important to me what I want to do with my life. Like the the narrative in the church often when we have trials is that, Oh, you're going through this so you can help somebody else. And I'm like, where are the people to help me? And it's like, why do I have to suffer for somebody else? Like, why can't somebody else come along and help me? Why do I have to be this lone person going through this? And so that was really frustrating for me. And so beginning of 2017, I had just graduated from college. My family was in a not great financial situation and, I was just feeling suffocated and desperate. And I was like, I need to get out of here. I need to move on with my life. I'm feeling very frustrated and stuck. And I had a job interview down in Utah that went really well. And I desperately needed it. And I think I still would have been a good fit for it. I understand why they didn't hire me, but I, it just didn't work out. And I had been, I went to the temple like every day for a week. I was like praying and fasting and paying my fast offerings and like doing, checking off all the boxes. And I'm like, I don't know how to show any more faith than I am right now when I'm in such a dark place in my life and things are so difficult. I'm literally doing everything possible, temporarily, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, like all of it. And it still didn't work out. And it, crushed me. And I was like, how are you supposed to be able to move a mountain with faith of a mustard seed if God's not willing to play along? Like, this just doesn't make sense to me. And I was just torn to pieces. And and that's like really when my, my shelf started cracking. I was like, I can't believe in a higher being that doesn't take their children's desires and needs into account and it also made me start thinking about like people who in worse situations than I am at least I wasn't homeless there are homeless people out there that don't have resources there are people who are starving in developing countries just things like that and I'm like I'm very lucky to be where I'm at but still why does God only bless like the affluent people (laughs) affluent white people specifically. Like, why are those the people that get all the blessings? And and it was just so frustrating for me. And I would go to church and I would hear these platitudes of, it's God's will and we need to bend to God's will. And I'm like, this is stupid. (laughs) And so I, that really was the biggest thing for me is just realizing how much I felt gaslit and I really just felt like I was in an abusive relationship with the church and, and with God. And I was like, this is too much for me. And so when I really started stepping back and in analyzing my feelings and my wants and desires and needs versus what I was given and the narrative I'd been taught, I realized how much it had negatively impacted my life from the beginning, really. And to the point where I was ready to take my life, to be quite honest, and I know i briefly mentioned that earlier, but I, I believed in the gospel so much that the narrative that, you know, that our trials will go away in the next life, that God will take care of them, that Jesus Christ is atoned for us so that he'll take away these trials. And I was like, I'm miserable now. And if I'm not going to be able to have a family or any of these things that make life worth living, what's the point of continuing my life. Why don't we just skip to the good part as one might say. And so that's the point I reached and I realized in my darkest moment, I was like, this would all be so much easier if I just didn't believe in the church. I don't understand how people can just leave and live their lives. Like, how do you get around this? Like when you believe something so wholeheartedly to the point that you're willing to give your life for it. And I remember sitting there and praying and Like I had this light bulb moment, that is like, well, then just don't believe it. Look at it, take it apart, analyze it and figure out what it is. That's really keeping you here. And so when I allowed myself to peek behind the curtain and see really what the church was made of and what the, where these doctrines came from and why I was made to believe what I believed. That's really when I realized how much trauma I had been through. And how much I had been harmed by a lot of the teachings and the beliefs and everything. And yeah, that's, it's been really interesting because before that, like I was upset, I was frustrated, but I didn't recognize the trauma. Like I remember I used to go to the temple and I would just, as we were driving up, I would have these butterflies and just this knot in my stomach and I'm like, oh, it's just Satan tempting me, like trying to keep me from going and doing what's right. No, I, looking back on it now, 100%, they were micro panic attacks. Like I did not want to be there and I just wasn't comfortable. And anytime I did anything remotely like sinful, like daydreaming about kissing a girl or something like that, like I just felt terrible. And, and I remember the very last time I was in the temple was March of 2018. I was in Portland for my cousin's wedding And I walked into the ceiling room and I sat down next to my mom and I just like this immense dread and just felt so dark and so awful. And I'm like, I'm just a terrible person. Like I, because I felt guilty and so ashamed of wanting more, of wanting to explore my sexual orientation and wanting to develop a relationship with a woman. Like I wanted that so deeply that I felt like I was not supposed to be there in the temple. And so when I finally gave myself permission to look at the underbelly of the church, really, that's when I realized that this was trauma, that what I was experiencing was trauma. And I I don't know, it's an interesting, I don't really know how to explain exactly how it feels. It feels like, Almost like I was in a dark room and I knew something bad was in there with me. And as soon as the light flipped on, you panic because you see what it is that you're, that is freaking you out. That is like a bear or something. I don't know. A room full of snakes. And I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> Absolutely.
1: It makes sense.
0: A hundred percent. Thank you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just uh, want to highlight religious trauma is real.
2: <laughs> yes, it is.
1: And... I think it's hard in any high demand religion or situation, people are told and taught to turn over their authority to something else. Absolutely. And so for years you kept denying what you were feeling with this panic and anxiety, thinking you were the wrong one. And not that this situation was the wrong one for you. Mm -hmm. That I think is one of the really hard dangers of religious trauma is can we use the term gaslighting a little bit? People feel like they're the wrong ones when maybe it's just not the right situation for you and everyone's on their own journey. And I'm grateful that you were able to figure out what works and doesn't work for you.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I want to highlight, I think so often we hear the narrative of, Oh my gosh, they left the church because they just want to sin. They want to go be gay, live the gay Mm -hmm. lifestyle No, come on, people. That's why we're sharing these stories, (laughs) right? People are doing what works for them and their health and wellness. And I know that it's a lot better that you're here alive, helping people and out of the church, Mm -hmm. stepping away from the church, however you want to qualify that, than giving into that suicidal ideation that's so real for so many queer people as they're in this seemingly impossible choice of one or the other.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's ultimately the point that I got to. was like, I would rather be open and gay than Mormon and dead. And I like that you brought up a lot of what we're told is to give away our power. And, and I've really, man, I have really leaned. I love the word queen, okay? <laughs> because it's... <laughs>
1: we're here a, for it.
2: Yes, a powerful woman who does not need a man, who does not need anybody to tell her what to do or how to live her life. And she is the master of her domain, whether that's your apartment or your family or like whatever, like you are powerful and you can control the world around you. And I have really leaned into that. And in fact, I was actually in a a post-Orthodoxy Mormon Facebook group. I've developed quite a few friends in there and some of them are a little more nuanced. Some of them are still believing to an extent. and Some of them are just like, I'm just here for the food. (laughs) But somebody was talking about Brene Brown and they were like, I have to admit I've never read one of their books. And I was like, do not feel bad for that. Brene Brown is great for other people, but she is not a prophet. She does not need to tell you wisdom. She does not need to give you power. You are wisdom. You are power. You have strength. And you just are you. Don't look to other people for wisdom. You don't have to take authority from other people. Like you are the wisdom that you need to navigate this world and nobody else has the right to tell you otherwise. So I'm just very much like empowerment, especially for women, (laughs) but like anybody in general that feels like they need a higher power of any sort, whether that's a bishop or a state president or the prophet or Jesus Christ himself, you don't need to ask for authority ask for permission from anybody else.
1: Yeah, I've seen that a lot with people who step away from the church. It's from one high demand religion to who's their new prophet. And I love Brene Brown. A lot of people go that direction. People go to Richard Rohr. They go to John DeLynn. There's so many different ways and people yeah. go to another thing because of this void they're trying to fill, which is valid. And if that's working for you, awesome. But I love that you highlighted Where's your authority? Can you go and not try to immediately fill this hole if Mm -hmm. you stepped away from this church and figure out you and what works for you and not go to another institution or group necessarily? Of course, I'm so grateful for them. They've helped me a lot. Mm -hmm. And I've needed to develop my own inner knowing and authority too.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for me, the church has taught us how to give away this authority. And for me personally, I have adapted to say, you're going to contradict yourself. There's Every Mormon is a cafeteria Mormon, because you Mm -hmm. cannot be 100% consistent with The gospel because it's so inconsistent, especially over time. But even Mm -hmm. in one general conference, you can have two general authorities contradict one another. So for me, it's like I can use my own authority to pick what voice I'm going to use, and I'm going to be very blatant and expose that and say, I'm picking this Mm -hmm. over this that is a contradiction within the the general conference for other people. That's going to be like, well, there's the contradiction. Like how can you be talking about the truth when there's these blatant contradictions? But for Mm -hmm. me, that's part of my authority is to say I'm going to take exactly what it is that I, I think, and I believe. And part of that is something that you're getting at, which is over time, the way Mormons have treated queer people, the way Mormons have talked about queer people and, and changed their minds over mm-hmm. time, or however you want to see that, mm-hmm. that the policies, the doctrines have changed to say, used to be queer people are just inherently bad. And if you grew up that way, which all of us did, why would we not? Why would we not? have a problem with self-esteem? Why would we not think that the next life is gonna be better off for us? We grew up with that, we heard that. It's not like it was covered up very easily. We knew these things about ourselves and we wanted so badly for it to not be real because we hear these horrible things about ourselves. Why would we not feel that? And I think we have to call that what it is. That is violence. We have a huge portion of our population that is suffering from suicidal ideation. That is violence towards us that is being perpetuated by this institution. And we have to call it what it is. It is violence. It's not just us with our own mental health problems. This is, we've grown up in a system that's giving us these parameters to do exactly what you've talked about, Tiana Colette mm-hmm. talks about in her episode as well. The exact same things I talking about it in mind that maybe it's better off that we're, that we go to the next life than stay here.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: thank you for highlighting that. I, I think that we all go
2: through that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. I know for a lot of queer people, and I'm certain there's going to be a portion of your audience that feels this way, but it's just, they're still trying to make that, make their faith work for them, their activity in the church. And I hope they understand that it's okay to stay if it's healthy for you, if it's really serving you and, and if you're really getting something out of it, but if it's causing you harm in any way, it's okay to step back and it's okay to decide what you want to keep and what you don't. You don't have to completely dismantle your faith like I did. You don't have to go looking for anti-Mormon literature, as some people say. (laughs) But I just think it's okay to be a part of this organization as long as you are happy and healthy. And that's one thing I don't know if you guys have mentioned this before. Charlie Brood and... Oh, Colette, you've been on their podcast before. Charlie and Ben Shalati. Yeah. I I actually have a lot of respect for them because I feel like they're like this soft landing place for a lot of queer people who are navigating their way through their belief and maybe on their way out of the church as well. Because if you don't see other people who are living your experience, you're far less likely to continue down this path that leads to authenticity. And so as long as you feel safe and happy and are gaining something from it, then take what you can and and move forward.
1: I think that's such an important message and takeaway. Do what works for you to stay healthy. And one thing I want to highlight that I tell people a lot is I think a lot of times people feel like they need to make a decision And then they have to stick with it. And one thing Mm -hmm. I like to remind people is you can change your mind at any time. You can decide to leave and decide to come back later. You can decide to step away and stay away. You don't have to make a decision today about what you're going to do with your faith, sexuality, the church, whatever, and stay with it forever. Just like Mm -hmm. we've seen if people were to go back to listen to your latter Gay Stories podcast interview and see where you're at now, people evolve and people change. And that's natural and normal. Mm -hmm. And so... Feel free to make a decision today based on what's working for you and know that you can change your mind later based on what's working for you then. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I wanted to highlight that. I have that discussion with clients a lot of, yeah, whatever you decide now, you can change your mind later. Don't feel stuck.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I've had that conversation with my therapist before too. She's like, you know, you can unchange a decision. And I'm like, what?
1: (laughs) I know. I don't know why that's so foreign. When I realized that one time, I'm like, wait a minute. I can change my mind. It's perfectionism.
0: We have read perfectionism that we have to be perfect all the time and make the perfect choice. We have, how often do we hear good, better, best, and you need to be making the best decision. No, sometimes you need to make the good decision sometimes, or sometimes even a bad decision to Mm -hmm. what is this life if we're not supposed to learn who we are and how we interact with the world and other people, like we cannot be afraid of making a bad decision. We need to just go forward with our lives.
1: Awesome, I've so appreciated your time. Is there anything else that's come to mind as we've talked that you wanna share with our audience?
2: I don't think so. I think we've told quite a bit of my story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And appreciate you being so open and willing to share it. I know this is gonna benefit people and they're definitely Mm -hmm. gonna connect with it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you joining us today.
0: Please feel free to follow, rate, and review. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at hello at call 2 You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Call to Queer. See you next time.